very glad to be uh, worshiping with you on this uh, Sunday. I'd invite you to open to our scripture passage today. We are continuing through the book of Malachi, and we are in uh, Malachi 2, 10 through 16. So Malachi 2, uh, 10 through 16. So starting in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful one to another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us as we just sung, Lord, we're entering this passage that just is heavy, and uh, Lord, it's easy to be misunderstood. It's easy to think it's saying more than it is, or to not think it's saying all that it is. And Lord, we ask that your Spirit would speak to us, give me wisdom, and we pray, Lord, that through this, you would both Convict us where we need to be convicted, but comfort each and every one of us where we need to be comforted. And to show us the grace and the beauty of Christ and the, the beauty of God, you who are our Father. We pray this in his name. Amen. So uh, if you've been with us, you know we are in the third week of studying through the book of Malachi. And before we jumped in, uh, people would sometimes ask me, well, what are we going to study next? And I would tell them, Malachi. And uh, some people didn't know what that was, and other people knew about it, and they said, huh, that's interesting. Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> Certainly, this book is uh, heavy hitting. But also, I hope as we've gone through it, you've seen that it is more relevant than maybe you first thought, especially from a dusty book in the Old Testament that most of us just skip over. It deals with heavy themes, and yet it deals with things that are close to our heart. In the first week, we looked at God's unbreakable love for people who keep messing up. Uh, last week, we looked at how God desires to have that first place in our hearts. And this week, we're jumping into another difficult passage, and I'm sure reading it even made some of you feel uncomfortable or raised a number of questions. And and I would just be happy if you still have questions or want to talk more about it. Talk to me or Pastor Wes or any of the elders as we've looked through this. For some of you, any topic uh, dealing with 
family, marriage, divorce is incredibly hard because it's personal. Uh, because of a marriage that you had or a divorce or your family history or maybe something about how you grew up. And one of the reasons passages like this are so hard is because family brings some of the highest highs. You remember the birth of your first child or the look on your kid's face when he reads his first words. But family can also bring some of the lowest lows, the loss of a child, even one in the womb, a marriage relationship, that quickly goes south and after a few years and turns into decades of just managing one argument after another and seeing how long you can maybe live together without actually caring for one another. A child that cuts you out of their life when they grow up. I think every one of us, we long for a big, happy family. And sometimes, though, it can feel like you've got a better chance of winning the lottery. Anyone who's ever been in a serious relationship knows that truth of C.S. Lewis's quote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure you keep it intact, you must give it to no one. And this is why this passage matters. There's a lot of stuff in this passage, but I don't want us to get so wrapped up in these details that we miss the heart of it. And it's really just this. God is building a big, happy family. God is building one big, happy family. And we're going to look at it three ways. First, mixed marriages. Second, hating husbands. And third, God's family. So mixed marriages. The first issue that God brings up here is that the men of, of Judah have been marrying outside of their faith. Now, back then, fathers, often with input from the mothers, had the responsibility for arranging their child's spouse. Now, this sounds very foreign to us today, right? Many of you cringe under that idea of having mom or dad pick out who you're going to marry. But we've got to remember, actually, in many cultures still today, this is a common practice. Uh, and in, for much of human history, this is how marriages happened, is two fathers from two different households would come together to negotiate some sort of deal. Now, one just needs to think of many of the stories of monarchs and if, of Europe, where kings and queens were involved in picking the spouses for their children to secure alliances with other countries or to protect their kingdom. And so the way this worked back then was these two families would come to a negotiation. Well, and it would often involve uh, the family of the bride receiving some sort of monetary gift. That was, in one sense, a show of honor for raising this woman. But then also, in a sense, you were taking a person out of their family. And so a way of compensating for that loss was you gave them some sort of financial gift. Because back then, and again, it still often works this way, is the, the woman would leave her family that she grew up in and kind of integrate into her new husband's family. And this is perhaps why the passage opens up with, do we not all have one father? It could be alluding to how the father, uh, God was the father of the Israelites. And so then he had a say over who they could or could not marry, like any other father of that time did. And so it was common, though, because of all these arranged marriages, that when the bride left her home, she would take pieces of her culture and, in particular, take her religious practice and her gods with her to her new home. People were very religious back then. People worshipped all kinds of different gods, and gods were very regional, generally. And so in that time, 
It, often the wife would bring if her gods and her idols to her new home, maybe set up a little shrine where she could go and worship them while her husband would go and worship his own gods in another part of the, the house or the compound. And in that time, the husband might realize, you know what? I kind of like my wife's gods better than my gods. And he would start incorporating worship or things that his wife would do into his own worship of the God. That is what's probably happening in verse 13, where it says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. Uh, This doesn't seem to be uh, representing some sort of genuine repentance or sorrow on the part of the worshipers, but seems more to be like a common practice in that day when it was often thought that even if you just remember, say, like the Greek gods, who were basically like really powerful humans, but were just as easily manipulated as humans. They just could, you know, destroy stuff or shoot lightning bolts or whatever it was, right? And so people thought that, well, the way that we could get the gods to do things to our favor was if we give big displays of emotion, right? If we cry out even louder, if we, you know, even injure ourselves, that will get the gods to pay attention to us and they'll have pity and they'll answer our requests. And so that worship of foreign gods influenced how the people started worshiping the God of Israel. Well, if we make a big show of emotion, well, then maybe God will notice us and answer our prayers. And just to be clear, what's described here isn't prohibiting marrying people of different ethnicities, but specifically, like it says in our text, people of different religions. Scripture has all kinds of examples of women of different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds marrying Israelites. Some of the most famous women in the Bible came from different cultural backgrounds. Ruth, Rahab, Moses' wife, many of them are praised and held in high regard. But the key thing with that is, in each case, those women recognize that the God of Israel was the true God. They wanted to make the Israelite God their God. They wanted to make the Israelite people their people. And that was a a beautiful thing. What is specifically being prohibited here is religious intermarriage. And the warning is stark. It says, the man who does this, the Lord will remove him from the tents of Jacob. It's describing some sort of exile from the community. And notice that little detail, whoever he may be. I think probably one of the more tempting places were for those that wanted to have authority or those who had some sort of power. And you, if you were a king or a queen or you ruled an area, you wanted to be strategic with the marrying of your kids because we want to have good relations with this family or that family, right? I mean, even you see it in so many movies with the mob, right? The, the, this, uh, you know, daughter's going to marry this family and then these two families will join together to expand our business, whatever it might be. And here, God says, whoever it might be. You know, so often for those who are in power to live with some sort of double standard, they're happy to let the rules apply to everyone except for them. But here, God says, no. Even if you think you need this business alliance, even if you think you need this for the protection of your kingdom or the protection of your, your empire, God does not allow you to bend the rules. He will enforce that you marry the type of people he thinks you should marry. Okay, well, how does this apply for us today? One thing, very specifically, it means today if you're single and you want to get married, marrying a Christian needs to be one of your top priorities. I'd say it is even unwise 
to date a non-Christian because it will be too tempting to compromise later. And why does God care about this so much? It's interesting. Uh, this theme comes up over and over again in the Bible. And I think one very basic reason is that if you're a Christian, to be a Christian means you are made one with God. You are united to Christ. Two become one, God and you. And then if you're, when you get married, you become one with another person. The two will become one flesh. And so what that means is that if Christ is over here that you're, and you're, you're one with him and your spouse is over here and you, you're one with him or her, you're going to always feel like you're pulled in two different directions. It, it goes back to what we saw in last week's sermon. What does God want? He wants your heart. He wants you to love him more than anything else. He doesn't want his relationship with you just to be something you check off after two hours on a Sunday, but someone who is the priority and first in your heart throughout the week. And after God, the relationship that comes next closest to that type of priority is your spouse. And that's good. That's right. That's how it's supposed to be. But if the two top priorities in your life are standing on opposite sides of the room, you're always going to feel that tension. You're going to feel like, well, I can be over here or I can be over here, but it is really hard to do both well. And you're going to feel like to love one with all of my heart means compromising and loving this other person in some way. And it's, you're going to feel torn. Now some caveats. You know, specifically for those of you who are in a mixed faith marriage, and there's a number of reasons for this. Right? Maybe you become a Christian after you get married. Uh, maybe you marry someone who you thought was a Christian and then they disavow their faith at some point later. And, and if you find yourself in that situation, I know there's plenty of you in this church that are in that situation. I don't need to tell you, it can be really hard. I have talked to many of you about that, how hard it is to try to juggle. And there's always these compromises and this negotiation and figuring out what is right, what will work. You, you feel that tug better than I know. I want to love God and I want to love my spouse. And sometimes it's hard, if not impossible, to do both well. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us some instructions for those of us in that situation in 1 Corinthians 7. And he says, if you find yourself in that sort of mixed faith marriage, that it's fine and good to stay married if that's possible. In fact, one of the greatest witnesses that you can have to your spouse, even though it's really hard, is by taking your faith seriously. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to say, hey, I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to do this thing on Sunday. But God will give you grace to be strong and modeling that love of Jesus in your own life, with your spouse, with your kids, can have a profound impact on your spouse, even if it takes a while to break through. You will become one of the clearest examples of what a Christian is for them, whether that's for good or for bad. But Paul also says, you know what, if it's too hard and your spouse says, I can't handle this, I, I don't like how much you're falling, God, I want out, this wasn't part of the deal. He says it's okay to let them go. Divorce is permitted in that situation, but it's never required. There's going to be particular challenges. As I said, I don't need to tell you this. But through the grace of God, you can have a good marriage, and you can love God. Even if your spouse doesn't share that same faith, it'll be hard but God's grace will be sufficient to you. But in that, don't give up on one or the other. 
Learn, seek God, seek his strength so that you can do both things. But if you're not married, well, then you shouldn't get yourself into that situation. You need to trust that God will take care of you. And why was it such an issue? Well, back then, it was probably that people felt like they needed to do this in order to get established for financial reasons. Remember, Malachi was written, the Jews had been taken off into exile and lived outside of their homeland. And during that time, a bunch of other people moved in and settled and got established. And now the Jews have started coming back into their homeland, but they discover they're now second-class citizens there, right? A whole uh, towns and economy has taken root since they've left. And now they aren't at the center of it, but at the sides of it. And so it would be very tempting as you're trying to get your family established, as you're trying to build your business, as you're trying to get the resources you need to have one of your daughters or one of your sons marry one of these foreign families because maybe they control access to key trade networks or they control access to you know, certain uh, you know, sheep or goats or whatever it needs you need for your family that could allow your family to have financial security. And so you say, well, it'll be all right. Man, if we could connect with that family, we'll be set. We'll be all right. We'll be taken care of. It's actually not all that different from those who feel that same temptation today when you're single. Especially in Utah, where finding a spouse of the same faith can be particularly challenging. Right? So you feel like you're torn between being forever single because there's, you can't find anyone. You know, there aren't any good Christian guys or good Christian girls out here in Utah. Or if you compromise on the faith part because you don't want to be alone forever. And that's really hard. Right? It's impossibly hard when you're 23 and still single, which in Utah you know, pretty much makes you a spinster. <laughs> You've got to trust, though, whatever stage of life that you're in, that God sees you, and he knows your heart, he knows what you need, and he will take care of you. And if it's his will, he'll provide a godly spouse for you. He's a good matchmaker. You just need to trust his timing instead of your own and trying to make something happen. Trust that he'll provide. Right? He knows your heart. And Again, for, for those of you who are in this situation, it can be hard to go to church alone. It can be hard to go to church without a spouse or as a single parent. Right? But we're really glad you're here. It's funny, I'm preaching all this on the Sunday Annette is joined, right? And it's, we're glad that Annette and her family feels welcome here. Because on one hand, this is her family. This is our family that even the single and the alone, God can place in a family. And so that every kid who shows up here, no matter what their biological family looks like, can know what it's like to have loving fathers and mothers and grandparents through the relationships that they build here. This brings us to our second point, hating husbands, verses 13 to 16. Again, it helps to understand the cultural background. Verse 13 describes a situation where the people would kind of worship 
the God of Israel like they would worship all these other gods by whipping up their emotions to try to manipulate the God to responding to them and hoping of getting God's attention. Now, one of the places this would often happen was in the dead of winter. And if you can put yourself back in around winter solstice, put yourself back in the ancients' mindset, right, where they didn't understand how the seasons work. And sometimes it feels like winter is dragging on forever. Maybe you felt like that when it's snowed for five days straight and you haven't seen any sunshine, right? And you're wondering, is spring ever going to come? And so they had gods that controlled that sort of thing. And so they would come and they would offer sacrifices to their gods and they would say, please, we need spring, you know, bring back the warmth. And this wasn't just, you know, for their own well-being. It was because every day they saw their food storage dwindle and they needed to get their last of the seeds in the ground so they could have more food. And so they were worshiping God like this. And God is saying, I am ignoring all of that. Why? does he say he's ignoring all of that? He says, I'm ignoring everything you're doing for me because of how you're treating your wife. This is a profound statement here. It seems that God cares an awful lot about how husbands treat their wives. You could be very religious like the people here. You could think uh, involved in all kinds of ministry, and from the outside, everyone looks and say, wow, look at all that person is doing for God. Look at how selfless they are. Look at everything they're doing. And God looks at all that stuff that you're doing, and he says, I'm not impressed at all. Come back when you've started loving and protecting your wife. Verse 14, God elaborates. He says that I was a witness for your marriage. And back then, the, the role of the witness was to stand there when these people made that promise to one another and to remind them of the promises they made. And if they start walking away from that promise, to call them back, say, no, I was there. Remember when you promised to care for her like this? And you're not doing that. And God is saying, I will witness against you for not caring for her like you said you would. And the wife of your youth, that's a, a term for that first wife. Many people uh, were married to multiple women or they had what was called concubines. And, and in some ways, the reason, one of the reasons for that is that wife of your youth was the wife that your parents picked for you. All right? And sometimes that wouldn't have been the person you would have picked for yourself. And so back then, wasn't right, but they would get other women. Oh, this, is the, you know, this woman is much more my style. I'm going to bring her in as a concubine or whatever. But God says... No, no, no. That wife that you made those promises to, that wife of your youth, she's the one that you need to care for. And again, it would be easy to say, I never would have picked her. We're not compatible. I deserve better than that. Am I just supposed to be unhappy my entire life? Which, you know, people still say that when they pick their own spouse five years into the marriage. And then you start thinking, here's another woman who's caught my eye. She's much more fun. She completes me. I'm attracted to her, whatever it might be. But God says, no, that's not why you're committed to her. Commentators note this significant word choice in the second part of verse 14. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. And that word almost always describes some sort of equality, a partner, not an inferior. See, one of the problems, it seems, that the, 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 the men of that time, which doesn't always change, where they were treating their wives like inferiors, like servants, like people that were just there to do their bidding, 
people that they could get rid of if they didn't like anymore. Douglas Stewart, one commentator, writes, even though this was written in a culture that often regarded women as inferior to men, by using this term of equality, he was challenging his audience and warning them that they hadn't the slightest right to divorce their wife. In the marriage covenant, they were equals, not superiors. And so we see here, God is holding husbands responsible. He says, you don't treat your wife like your property. You don't treat her as someone who's just there to fulfill your needs, to take care of your desires. And if she's not doing that, well, you can be free to go look elsewhere for someone who will. And how does God describe the person who's doing that? He says, you're actually hating your wife. You're doing violence to the one that you're called to protect. And so for all the men here, how is your wife doing? Is she flourishing under your love and protection? Or is she suffocating? Because the one who should be guarding and cherishing her soul is beating her down. Not physically, although certainly that happens far too often. But even verbally, constant criticism, not sharing her burdens, being overly demanding, expect that she does everything just to how you want it, instead of you learning to serve her, protect her, nourish her. When you say, I do, you're making a promise to love and cherish her when it's easy, but in particular when it's hard, and to protect her and care for her soul so that she flourishes and blossoms into the woman that God has made her to be. But if you simply treat her as an object for your own pleasure or your own service, you're failing in your duty as a husband, and God will witness against you. All right, third point, God's family. One commentator said verse 15 is one of the most difficult verses in the Old Testament to interpret. And and you might have picked this up because depending on your translation, there can be significant differences in this verse. Because there's a lot of ambiguity here that translators try various ways to clear up. And so a literal translation of verse 15 is something like, was it not one he made with a remnant of spirit? And what is the one seeking? Godly seed. So watch out for your lives and do not be unfaithful to your childhood wife. If one hates and divorces, Yahweh Israel's God says, he covers his clothes with crime. Yahweh of the army says, so watch out for your lives and do not be unfaithful. So, there's a bunch of different ways that you can interpret this. There's lots of ambiguity here. But what is clear is the conclusion. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Everything, however you interpret the stuff, comes down to that. That is what God wants us to know. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So here we've got another heavy-hitting passage from Malachi. (laughs) And I'm sure we've all felt uncomfortable at various points, but why does God care so much about this? It's because God's plan from the very beginning of creation has been to build one big happy family and build a forever home for them. We shouldn't minimize the importance of family. Family is something that God created. And every single one of us knows the importance of family. Either because you've had a great family and the little experiences of that are seared into your memory 
or because of the heartbreak that you've had with family and the wounds and the brokenness and things that still haunt you decades later. And I think every single one of us, we wish, we long for a big, happy family. It's why you do all kinds of work to get the baby room ready when you're expecting your first child. It's why those who are rejected, who reject their family go and try to find some other group that can feel like family. It's why even little things, we all want a good family picture with every person in it smiling, looking like they like each other, because even we want to capture just for a moment that we were all one big happy family, even if it was just a split second. And God made us that way because it reflects his desire for a big happy family. And we see that in this opening sentence of our passage, do we not all have one father? See, God is adopting his people into his family so that we will all call him father. And scripture shows that our earthly families, as good as they are, are in the end samples and shadows of the heavenly family that God is growing. From when God first created the world, his plan, he gave this mandate to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Essentially what he said is, I've made this little home for you guys, but it's not big enough. And so that your job is through you and your kids and your grandkids is to take this little beautiful Garden of Eden and continue to work it and work it and work it until it spans the entire globe. And there is a beautiful home for all of my people where I can live with you. His goal was to transform this world from deserts and dry places to springs and mountain valleys and, and beautiful gardens. And God's plan was that nothing would hinder this work. No matter what happened, he would never stop loving them. He would never stop being committed to build that home for his people. But to love someone is to make yourself vulnerable, even open yourself up to hurt. And it didn't take long for what was the first broken family? It was Adam and Eve with God. They rejected him as their father. They ran away from that home that he developed. They didn't believe that the commands that he had given them were good for them and think, actually, maybe what God is asking us to do is harmful to us. And they believed that we know better what it, we need to be happy. And that's the story of humanity ever since and the story for every one of us. You doubt that what God is saying is actually good for you and you love all kinds of things more than him. And so God has found himself in a relationship where he said, I do, to people who cannot stop cheating on him. And what do you do when you've promised to love someone who won't stop hurting you? This is why God allows divorce in certain circumstances, because the pain is too deep, the betrayal so strong, that he says, it is not healthy for you to stay in this relationship. You should split for your sake of you and your kids. But what does God do when he finds himself in that relationship? The one who has the best reason to divorce us because of our continued failures. He doesn't let go. He holds on to you. He holds on to us even if it kills him, that he will do whatever is needed to rescue us, even if it leads to a cross. This is what's described in Hebrews chapter 2. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, 
chose to bring many children into glory, adopt us. And it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. And this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. This is an amazing statement. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Even after all the ways you failed, again and again, he never looks at you and then turns the other way. He never sees you and acts busy so he doesn't have to talk. His arms always stay open to you, and he's proud to call you his family. God's love is so strong that it can take a bunch of imperfect people and transform them into a big, happy family. And that's what the church is called to be a preview of. We fail. We fall short of God's ideal. But the church here is a family for those who have great families, and you can help make it greater. And it's a family for those who have broken families, where you can come and rediscover what love and family can be like. It's a family for those who are alone, where you can discover you have many brothers and sisters. Passages like this can be kind of tough, right? And maybe you're thinking, God doesn't know how much this has hurt me. That's where we're wrong. He knows exactly what it's like. He knows intimately the pain of love. For he died on the cross because he would not let us go. Are you in a difficult family relationship? God knows what that's like. He was the first to have a broken family, and he can uniquely comfort you. So press into that love. Has your family been broken? Have you never known a good family? Are you alone? Well, you won't miss out on anything because God is building a forever family where everyone will get to experience the best of what a family is supposed to be. And one day, God will wipe all of your tears from the heartbreaks of family here, and he will invite you to his table where you will sit with all of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and there you will feast, and you will laugh, and you will look around and realize everything's okay, because God has healed you, and he's brought you home, and he's surrounded you by one big, truly happy family. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us that joy and what we await for and long for in heaven. Father, the pains of family can run so, so deep, and it feels like things will never change. But Lord, in our weakness, in our pain, in our sorrow, help us to press deeper into the comfort of Jesus, who knows exactly what that feels like. We pray this in his name. Amen.